You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbard, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening. Today you'll be hearing from Steve Coleman, a member of our teaching team, as he continues our series called The Master. How many of you feel totally awake and alert and alive? That's about right, yes. Uh, So uh, I've got recognizing that, thinking ahead. I brought with me Starbucks gift cards. (laughs) And we're going to have a quiz. So it's time to be alert. Question one. Yes. Let me see hands. I saw a Carolyn hand. I didn't even ask the question. Thank you for reading quickly. Carolyn. Yes, you may. Okay, thank you. There was another hand over here. Did somebody, somebody raised a hand here. I saw it. No? Who was second? Amanda? Yes. John, exactly. Thank you. Good. She's awake now. Who spoke last Sunday? Squirrel. Squirrel. Justin. Justin spoke last Sunday. I had to look it up to make sure. These get a little harder. Well, I only have one card left, so how hard can it get? Purim celebrates God protecting Israel during the events described in what book of the Bible? Okay. That's the first hand I saw. Yes. Thank you for helping her win the card. Thank you. Okay. The new annual tradition at New Hope Chapel. Time change Sunday, we hand out gift cards. It would be nice if the next speaker next year would provide something for everybody, wouldn't it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no question. Uh, well, we've been talking in this series uh, of John. We've had Jesus talking to his disciples. We've had Jesus arguing or or defending himself to the Pharisees, making statements to them. We've had him healing people. He attended a wedding. We've had all kinds of conversations, private conversations he's had with people. Uh, And in all that, we've seen the themes of John underscored. As you read the book of John, you cannot help but be struck by the idea that John's trying to communicate to us that Jesus is the Son of God. Justin did a nice job last week of of talking about how the the Gospel of John was written later than the other Gospels, and perhaps as late as 90 AD, and that some of the things he wrote, and and Justin highlighted those in the material in John 6, but that a lot of those things that he wrote, he wrote in that context rather than AD 33, and and that there was a, a a very significant false teaching going around called Gnosticism, which had a set of beliefs and how what Jesus, what John recorded Jesus saying was emphasizing Jesus as a son of God and sort of counteracting some of that. Uh, some of that. Uh, we're going to talk about context today. I don't know that the things in this uh, chapter are going to relate directly to Gnosticism. But uh, anyway, the second theme of the book of John that you'll find he expressly states in chapter 20 uh, that 
Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And we've seen that underscored time and time again in, in what we have, what we've covered. Well, here we are in chapter 7. And Jesus makes one of the most dramatic statements we've heard to date from him. Uh, let's, let's talk about the background. Uh, the, the, the Feast of the Tabernacles was coming up. Jesus was in Galilee. And chapter 7 opens up with Jesus' brothers telling him, Hey, why are you hiding up here? We know that the folks in Jerusalem are very unhappy with you, and the Bible says they were seeking to kill him. But why don't you go down to Jerusalem and really show these people who you are? John tells us this is because they didn't believe in Jesus. So this was somewhat of a cynical recommendation. Jesus says, I'm not going now. They go down to the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus follows, but he goes in secret. He goes low-key. He sort of slips into Jerusalem. And we read about a few interchanges that he has. It says he, he started teaching about the middle of the week. And uh, he had kind of a low profile. And that's because the leaders were really out to kill him. Uh, they, uh, they actually sent temple guards out and say, go arrest that man. Well, toward the end of this chapter, we read, the temple guards come back without having arrested them, and the Pharisees say, what, what happened? And their response was, no man spoke like this man. We didn't arrest him. Amazing that Jesus' words would carry that kind of power. But they did. Wouldn't it have been wonderful to hear that, to listen to that teaching? In the crowd that was there, now, now the Feast of Tabernacles was one of three festivals or feasts that... Um, the, it was required that, that uh, Israel travel to Jerusalem for. The first one's Passover, second one is Pentecost, and the third one is this uh, Feast of Tabernacles or Festival of Tabernacles. So Jerusalem is packed with people. And in this context, Jesus is, is talking to them, and he's, uh, he does a, a little bit of of discussion with them, a lot of them answering questions, defending himself, um, and we don't hear much from him until it says in verse uh, 37, on the last greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. What a huge moment. Uh, All these Jews gathered, and a lot of good, faithful Jews that understood and knew the law. And here's Jesus standing up and and making this incredible statement. He said this before. He talked about... Uh, being a source of living water to the Samaritan woman on a one-on-one conversation. This was in front of the gathered assembly, to the extent they heard, everyone at Jerusalem at the time. 
It's a remarkable statement for many reasons. It's kind of like an onion. And there's a lot of layers to this that don't, aren't apparent when you first look at it. So let's take a look at those one by one. We're going to talk about the, con the context of the festival itself. The Feast of Tabernacles was when Israel came. They set up those booths. You know, every year in the fall, we uh, set up one over there as an illustration of that. It's a, it was the most joyous of all the festivals. People came and um, uh, to celebrate, they would have these, um, these large candelabras, 75 feet tall, it tells us. Olive oil poured in, flames going, and you can see at night here. One artist's rendition of how that was, was like. You see all the people there. Some are dancing. Uh, Jerusalem's packed. Everybody's joyful because the harvest has come in. This is the time that they celebrate God's abundance and God's goodness. Uh, they have events that go on into the night. They have a, a uh, uh, they sleep out in these uh, lean-tos, and they come and they celebrate every day in the temple. They go through sacrifices. They have a water-drawing ceremony that I might mention in a minute or two. Uh, they sing the Hallel, Psalm 113 to 118. Uh, every day they sing through that. And uh, they're thankful for God for providing the harvest. And they also are asking God for the rains for the next season. The water drawing ceremony uh, is uh, the wine that comes as part of the drink offering and then water. The high priest goes down to the pool of Siloam on the south side of Jerusalem, collects water, brings it back, and you've got all of the Levites here blowing trumpets. Here's that high priest bringing that water back. The street is lined with people cheering and shouting. And he takes that water into um, the temple. And with the wine, they, they, they set up these two bowls at the altar, and uh, one for the wine and one for the water, with a, with a hole in the, in the bottom of each to allow this to, to, to drain down. Gary Dereshinsky talks about they, ha they have this rig that they set up with these pipes, tubes, where these things flow down. They flow down to the bottom of the altar and mingle there, and it's, it's part of this. And during that time, they're singing Psalm 118 and give thanks to the Lord. They're taking the branch that they have and and the, the fruit, and they're waving it and saying things in unison and, and uh, having an exciting time with that. Um, as part of Psalm 118, which I didn't read at the communion part, but they pray this, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. This is their call for next year. This is their prayer for the next year that's coming that God would, again, show his blessing, uh, provide rain, and they would have the crops. You know, at the end of this festival, because it says on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and made this proclamation. But the people had just been singing, all week long had been singing, but just on the last day of the feast had sung Psalm 118. We beseech you, do send prosperity. And Jesus stands up. And claims to have water from God. In the context of this 
uh, festival, it, it would get their attention. You know, the other contextual piece are these booths or these lean-tos that the people stayed in. One of the reasons they stayed in them outside, God commanded this in Leviticus, was so they could remember God's protection and care of his people when they wandered in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. And they lived in tents. They lived in tabernacles. That's why they built the, the large tented structure, the tabernacle for God to be in. But, but the people lived in the same way. And so as they're laying there at night, uh, and they can see through these, these branches that are covering uh, their tabernacle, they could see the stars uh, above and through it. They were to think about God and how he provided for his people. One of the things that would come to their mind, especially in connection with the Feast of Tabernacles, are the times that God provided his care when, if you remember the stories, one in Exodus, one in Numbers, God provided water for the people when they had none and were were, um, dehydrated and provided them water by, by Moses, in one case, striking the rock. God wanted him to speak to the rock the second time, and water came out of it. You know, we know from 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about the Old Testament folks and how we can learn lessons from them. And he talks about how God cared for them. And he said, they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the rock that followed them. This rock is Christ. So we're under no illusions as to um, who that was, who that rock was. But Moses, at the end of his life, shortly after that second incident, where God provided water out of the rock, he writes a song as part of his farewell to the people. And it's a whole chapter long, Deuteronomy 32. And in there, um, six times, he refers to God as the rock. So the people that were gathered there for the Feast of Tabernacles, they would be thinking of these events and these connections. And here's Jesus who stands up and proclaims, Uh, I'm the guy that provides this provision from God. I provide that water that bubbles up that everybody thirsts for. Remarkable when you see it in the context. Jesus saying, all who are thirsty, come to me. You know, Jesus spends some of his time, and when I spoke about four weeks ago, He was confronting the Pharisees on who he was, and he lays out this case step by step. Jesus spent a lot of his time doing that, trying to communicate to people, the Jews, I am that Messiah. Um, New Zealand, the New Zealand SPCA has found a novel way to connect up um, people that are interested in a dog and some of the rescue dogs that they have. You ever heard of a doppelganger? It's a German word. It sort of talks about this, uh, the, the, the notion that there's somewhere in the world there's somebody that looks exactly like you, and they're out there somewhere. Sort of an d- unsettling notion. Well, they've come up with a program they call, that's not it, that's Moses, striking the rock, 
a nice picture and a summary slide. Doggle Gangler, where they match. You upload your picture, and they'll use facial recognition software to help match you with a dog that comes closest to you. <laughs> so here's a couple of examples. Here's uh, the accuracy of the match here is 53%. I don't know, can you guys see that? And we, we read age two years, sex female. I assume they're talking about the dog. <laughs> but this was this woman's match when she put it in. 53% isn't a high percent. Uh, but uh, it, I'm, I question the validity of the software. Uh, here's another example. This, this has a higher accuracy. Uh, this has an accuracy of 67%. That was about the highest I saw when I was poking around looking for it. But their idea is you're going to find your match, the person that is you, uh, this rescue dog and Boy, this is a dog that you should have because it's your match. They say we detect the head and region and the face, the head region and the face region. Then we have to extract facial features from the, the face, and then they, they let this program run. Well, Jesus, in talking about himself, is saying, I'm the one that has this water that springs up. I'm the one that's representing the rock that provided that water in the Old Testament that you're remembering in this festival. I'm, I'm, I'm the God that is responsible for these rains and this harvest and this celebration. I am the guy. I am the Messiah. Well, let's go a little deeper. These are fine and good, but there's more layers here. As I, and, and I did not know until I started sort of looking at these and, and following up on some, uh, some references and, um, and saw how this connected. The Feast of Tabernacles had some other uh, sort of subtler notions connected with it. And I want to talk about sort of the metaphor of water that Jesus is using here. You see, we're familiar with the metaphor of water. It's explained pretty well in the New Testament. Christ says it here. We like all the I am's. We recognize those. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world, and so on. So they're comfortable and familiar to us because we've grown up with them. This might have been a new thought that Jesus saying, I am the guide from whom these living waters come. But the idea of this water isn't a new one. You know, water was life to an agricultural people in a land that's dependent on rain or dew for their crops and for moisture, both for uh, the crops and for them. Living water ordinarily meant flowing water. That's the living part of the living water, flowing water. And what they're, what they're talking about is that in contrast to a water that is been stored up in a cistern. I think I have a cistern. I'm trying to remember. No, I don't. Okay. Uh, there are some pictures. Uh, cisterns were, were usually carved out of stone, out of the stone, a large stone, 
an outdoor cistern. Of course, a pot or something like that could be a cistern, something that holds water. Uh, and, and that water would be stale. It could be brackish. Uh, and it's not the preferred water. You'd always like a fresh stream flowing. A lot of the streams in Israel would, would sl- slow greatly or dry up in the summer because of the, the, the arid temperatures. So Jesus saying, I am this water bubbling up would be significant. But the Jews also understood another meaning, a meaning to water and to living water. They, they used it and knew it to be the water that satisfies the thirst of the soul. I didn't know they did that. That's, that's kind of a New Testament idea, but no, all the way back in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 12, 2, it says, Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and defense. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Props up time and time in the Old Testament. Another way water is connected, it's connected with God's spirit. You wouldn't think so in the Old Testament. But in Isaiah 44, 1 through 5, part of it says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. Talk, water is used in the context of a relationship with God. Listen to Isaiah 55, 1 through 7. Come all, you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You know, that sounds an awful lot like Christ's statement. Come, those that are thirsty. Isaiah 55, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You think a Jew looking for Messiah up on on their Torah, up on the prophets, would have recognized Jesus saying, come to me you who are thirsty, I have living water. This was a really strong appeal that resonated to the heart of Jewish thinking, those that were devout and were looking for a relationship with God. You know, he goes on to say there in Isaiah 55, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promise to David. So he's connecting it right up with God's promises to the people and his relationship to it. Relationship with God. Why spend money on what does not satisfy? The living water that Christ talked about, the Jews would understand, meant this soul satisfaction. This response to a desire to have a relationship with God. He got their attention when he made his statement. Sort of like if you had a congregation on a time change Sunday and you held up a bunch of Starbucks cards. It would have grabbed their attention. It would have made them think. And yet again, John brings us back to his two themes. 
Jesus is God. And the invitation to believe. Come to me, all you who are thirsty. But there's one more layer that we can uncover here. And that is, water is used as a symbol of the messianic kingdom. Zechariah says, on that day, in the context, that means that day when, when Christ comes and sets up his messianic kingdom. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. So, folks thinking about the meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles would have heard this and understood. This guy... Is God, yes, but he's talking about the thing, the thing we're all hoping for, looking for. There's another verse, set of verses in Ezekiel 47, 1 to 12. Some of the more striking verses I've ever read on the messianic kingdom and period. Uh, and in Ezekiel 47, uh, Ezekiel's talking about this vision he had, and a man... He says, brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. He goes on and talks about this water, and it turns into this river of living water, flowing water. And he says, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. What's remarkable about this verse is how close it resembles the description in Revelation 22.2 about the new Jerusalem. There's a river that flows out from the altar. There are trees on both sides. They have fruit that comes once a month, 12 times, and the leaves are used for the healing of the nations. So for us, that's what that's talking about. But for that devout Israelite who was hearing Jesus say these words, as they thought through these words, as those words resonated with things they understood and knew from the Old Testament, they would have seen these connections. Because you see, the Feast of Tabernacles had that as its view too. One of the reasons that God had them stay in these tabernacles was a reminder that God dwelled with them in tabernacles. In the tabernacle. In a tent. When they were in their wanderings. And now here they are celebrating at the temple. And the temple, for most of his life, never saw the glory of God, that, that visible glory of God like the Israelites had in the wilderness that led them where they were to be and, and would settle over the tabernacle when they camped. Uh, the temple never saw that. But the temple was where God dwelled, between the cherubim and the Holy of Holies, where that was. Jesus saying... Jesus said with a loud voice, Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. That's talking about God no longer dwelling in a tabernacle, no longer living in the temple, but living in each and every person. Something that's only possible in the Jewish mind in the Messianic time. They didn't understand this this period of time where God is implementing that part of the Messianic kingdom uh, during this time period. We're experiencing a piece of what God's overall plan and promises were uh, to Israel. The rest of it's going to happen later on. And Israel will be uh, renewed and revived and brought back to the Lord at that time. And, but, the, but the Jew, in that tabernacle, recognizing yet God lived in tabernacles, we're worshiping him here, reading Zechariah and Ezekiel, where there's a coming day when the living water of God would come out and be available to everybody. It would be available to the nations. And here's Jesus standing up saying, I've got that living water. And I'll give it to you. They didn't know he was talking uh, directly uh, about the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost in a little less than a year's time. But Pentecost is one of those uh, festivals where people came to Jerusalem. Do you think some of the same people listening at this tabernacle were in Jerusalem at the next Passover when Christ was crucified? And in Jerusalem that next Pentecost to hear Peter and the disciples when they were filled with the Spirit? We read that that day 3,000 souls were added to the church on that day of Pentecost. I think a lot of those people were people whose hearts were prepared. They had heard this during the Feast of Tabernacles the year before. And God had them there and ready when the fulfillment of that came to fruition. You know, we have the Holy Spirit in us. And uh, that is amazing. Uh, I take it for granted sometimes to have lived like the Jews did in the olden time, to come to the temple three times a year, to worship there, to not see God's glory in quite the same way it was seen in uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness. But you've seen some of God's glory. You've seen miracles, small miracles, medium-sized miracles, things that stopped you in your track in your past. I would assume the things God did. But even though we've got God's spirit in us, that doesn't mean that there is some kind of bliss, that that life is now no trouble and we float along. That's not true. We still struggle. We still have issues. This is in the Old Testament too. In Jeremiah, who, who I like, he's pretty hard on the people, but he's got his own great metaphors. But he uses this water metaphor also in Jeremiah 2. Let me read a little bit of it to you. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? 
They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Therefore, I will bring bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and bring charges against your children's children. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What an apt description. He says, now why go to Egypt to drink from water from the Nile? And why go to Assyria to drink water from the Euphrates? Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. This is where I put the pictures of cisterns. The one on the right is holding some water. The one on the left is a broken cistern. Uh, You can't see very well. There's another broken cistern here, carved out of the rock, and yet it's not going to hold water. Two sins. We've forsaken the water from the living God, and we chase after our own cisterns. And they're not even cisterns that are going to hold water. They're cisterns that don't hold water. There's no satisfaction, God says, apart from him. Uh, One of the challenges I find is that uh, as a person who's got God's spirit, and God's spirit that, as Christ said in the metaphor, has water springing up that's supposed to, uh, supposed to overflow out to others, is that I'm not always, um, as uh, every moment of every day, I, I know I'm just not there. There are some days where I've just turned left for a while, and, and I'm not uh, focused on the right thing. And I know there are areas in my life where I'm still pretty happy to look for satisfaction over here and in this and in that, rather than recognizing all the things I have I'm supposed to be taking care of and enjoying and using for, for the kingdom, but they're not mine. And if God says, no, you need to get rid of that one. Um, I can't remember the quote exactly, Julie, but it says you better hold things with a lightly in your hand or else you're going to get It'll hurt when God pries it it out of your hand. So, um, to me, that's that's the dilemma of the lottery system. Ever drive by a lottery and it's like, it's 8,000 million now. And you think, well, you know, one dollar? You never know. (laughs) Look at the things I would pay off the New Hope Chapel mortgage. Missionaries, I'd just make a big list and start sending money out. I would be so good at that. (laughs) But there's a real possibility within an hour of receiving the check. The Lord would say, just hand that check away. Get rid of it. And it'd be like, well, I was going to do so many good things for you with it. (laughs) So I think that the dilemma boils down to, I don't really want to go through that experience of having to give up the check. So it's better not to even think about it and do it. 
Why are we asking for a painful lesson in our lives? The Lord knows, and that's why I, don't, I only get the money I get. And, uh, but that's, we have those things in our lives. We, uh, we can worry about our cars. We can gasp when the, the, the stock market drops. And we look at our savings and say, well, I was thinking about retiring next year. Maybe it'll come back up. Or we, we worry about house prices or things. And um, we have to take all those to the Lord. We're stewards of them. But a light hand. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.